it is such a blessing to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Uh, I was listening to those testimonies, and I almost felt like I don't need to preach today. All right? <laughs> um, man, we've heard uh, stories of God's grace this morning, and I'm just thankful for what God's doing uh, in our lives and in our church. We're in the midst of a discipleship journey as a church, and the, the purpose of this year really is to be very intentional about some of the things that, that I talk about on Sunday mornings. I know many of you are in community groups, and you're discussing these things, and you're talking about how you actually live them out in your life, and that's just such a blessing uh, to hear. And so whether you're new in the faith and this journey is building a, an initial foundation for you, or whether you've been a believer for a long time, I'm just praying that this will strengthen your foundation, amen, that you'll really know what you believe and, and why you believe it. And so we started out the journey talking about knowing God, right? We talked about how we can know that God exists and we can know that he can be known, and we talked about his nature, right? What is God like? And then we spent three weeks talking about what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. And we really said this, that we can't say we follow Jesus if we don't go where he leads us, right? And so what it really means to be a follower of Christ is that we would hear his voice, we would recognize that he directs our lives and that we would submit to his will. For the next four weeks, we're going to spend our time on a topic that I think is, is so vitally important for you to understand. It's a theme that is woven throughout the pages of Scripture, and it is really what sets Christianity apart from all of the other religions in the world. I heard that, that during the middle part of the 20th century, there was a gathering of theologians. There was this uh, conference they were doing, and it was a comparative religions conference. And so they got together and began to debate about what makes Christianity so unique. And some suggested in that gathering that Christianity was set apart from other religions by the concept of the incarnation, right? The idea that God came and took on human form in the person of Jesus Christ. But someone in that group chimed in and he said, well, actually, there are other faiths that believe that God appeared in human form. Someone uh, suggested, well, maybe it's the resurrection, right? The fact that death is not the final word, that Jesus defeated death and the grave. And, and, and then there was somebody else who spoke and said, well, there are actually other religions that have accounts of people rising from the dead. And it was at that moment that the great theologian C.S. Lewis walked into the room. He was wearing a tweed jacket, had a pipe in his mouth, his hands were full of papers, and he sat down because he was actually early for his presentation, and so he began to listen to the debate that was already in progress. And he noticed that things began to get a little bit testy in the room, and when there was a lull in the conversation, he spoke up and he said, what's all the ruckus about? Everyone turned in his direction, trying to explain themselves, and they said, were you debating about what makes Christianity so unique. And Lewis said this, oh, that's easy, it's grace. And when he said that, the room fell silent. Lewis continued on saying that Christianity has a unique claim that God's love comes free of charge and it comes with no strings attached. Lewis exclaimed that there was no other religion on earth that could make this claim And after a moment of silence, one of the scholars in the room commented that Lewis had a point. He stated that the Buddhists, for example, follow an eightfold path to enlightenment. Theirs is not a free ride. 
he also informed the crowd that, that the Hindus believed in karma, which means that your actions continually affect the way that the world will treat you, right? And, and thus how God sees you. There's nothing that comes to you that is not set in motion by your actions. Another scholar spoke up and observed that the Jewish code of the law implies God has requirements for his people in order for them to be acceptable. In Islam, God is a God of judgment, that he's not a God of love. In Islam, you live your life to appease his judgment. At the end of the discussion, everyone concluded that Lewis had it right. And I want to tell you, it's still true today. Only the Christian faith dares to proclaim God's love for humanity is unconditional. It is this unconditional love that we call grace. We're going to spend the next four weeks talking about the grace of God because without an understanding of God's grace, I I believe this, your relationship with God will never be what it ought to be because God's grace actually has very little to do with us. It has very little to do with our own drive to be good, but instead, grace is all about God. God freely giving to us the gifts of forgiveness and mercy and love. But knowing that that grace is what separates Christianity from all the other religions in the world, we ought to ask this question, what exactly is grace, all right? You have your note sheets with you today, I wanna encourage you to pull them out. We're going to have some fill in the blanks. I want you to write some things down. We're going to engage with this today. What exactly is grace? Well, the Greek word for grace is the word haris. And it basically means that we as Christians are receiving what we do not deserve. There are 131 uses of grace in the New Testament, in the ESV. Oh, 124 in the New Testament. 86 of those are found in the epistles of the Apostle Paul, which means that two-thirds of all the uses of the word grace in the Bible are by one author, it's Paul. It's no wonder he's called the Apostle of Grace, right? Paul is the Apostle of Grace. Now, this Greek word for grace is just the opposite of the Greek word for mercy, elieu, which basically means this, not getting what we do deserve, right? When we receive mercy, understand it's this, it's, it's holding back something we do deserve, like eternal punishment, right, for our sins. And so mercy is holding back judgment that is deserved, and grace is giving favor that is undeserved. Write this down, the grace of God is his undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor. It's his undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor. Some have said you can describe grace this way. Just write it down on the side, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. When we receive grace, the grace of God, it is God's riches, not at our expense, right, but at Christ's expense. Now, now that's what most of us have in our minds when we say that God is a God of grace. That's true. That's wonderful. Our eternal lives depend on it. Understand, none of us would be saved if grace were not undeserved favor. <laughs> if it were not a quality in the, in the mind, in the heart, in the nature of God. But this simple definition that grace is God's great gift to humanity, that it reveals his love and his favor and goodwill to bring about freedom from sin in our lives. That definition is good, but it doesn't really share what grace is all about. Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to turn there. Ephesians chapter 2, again, 
Here's the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Grace, sharing some powerful truths about grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Understand this, God's grace is a gift at his pleasure. It's a gift at his pleasure. It is, according to those verses, right, it is a gift of God. And so when we look at the term or phrase, the grace of God, the first thing we need to understand is that God's grace is not something that we can manipulate and control. It cannot be used for our own personal desires and our own personal goals, right? The grace of God can only come from God himself, but more than that, the grace of God it comes to us completely at his pleasure and not ours. There are many today who do not fully understand God's grace, and so they misunderstand this whole concept. So many believers today want to believe that they can call on God to supply them with his grace for their own desires. Or, or we try to live our lives under our own power and our own ability, not fully understanding or realizing the nature of God's grace. You could call this Christian self-sufficiency, right? I, I truly believe that this attitude of Christian self-sufficiency, this belief that we have little or no need for God's grace in our lives, that somehow we can fix everything that's wrong in our lives, this attitude is what's weakening the church of today. As believers, we can never forget that our sufficiency can only be found in the grace of God. And what I mean is God's grace at God's pleasure. The Apostle Paul was a man who certainly could have relied on his own ability. He was the smartest of the smart, man. He was on the fast track to becoming a great priest in Israel. But even though he had all the knowledge and he had all the teaching, after his encounter with Jesus Christ, he understood, man, all of that means nothing outside of God's grace. You see, if our only desire as the people of God is for our continual comfort, if, if we live our lives simply trying to avoid any kind of persecution or inconvenience, then we'll never come to a place of truly trusting that God's grace can and will cover us in every situation that God brings our way. John Ortberg, in his book, uh, he wrote this book called If You Want to Walk on Water, you got to get out of the boat, right? He, he writes this. He says, far too often as believers, we settle for the quick band-aid approach to serving God because it is the way we are most comfortable and it is the way in which we are not inconvenienced at all, but mainly it is our way and not his way. But here's the reality. We are saved by God's grace to serve God as he desires and he pleases. Yes, two fill in the blanks there. He desires and he pleases. We're, we're not saved by his grace to live out our own desires. I fully believe that many in today's church, maybe even some of you sitting here this morning, would much rather be comfortable and not serve God as he calls you to serve him rather than serve God as you know he's calling you to and have to rely on his grace and his provision of grace. And so again, understand this, we have the gift of God's grace because of God's pleasure. We have access today to God's grace because of the love and the compassion of God. 
Now, we can clearly see that this grace comes from God. It comes as a gift of love and mercy to our sinful situations. Secondly, I would say this, God's grace is a gift from God himself, and it's not our actions, okay? Uh, Again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Understand today that there is nothing that God's grace cannot do. At the same time, there is nothing that you and I can do to add to his grace, And there is nothing we can do to take away from his grace. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, uh, amazing book by Philip Yancey. If you haven't read that book, pick it up, What's So Amazing About Grace. He he points out that our struggle so often when we think about grace is with the nature of grace itself. He says this, grace is scandalous. It's hard to accept, hard to believe, and hard to receive. Grace shocks us in what it offers. It is truly not of this world. frightens us with what it does for sinners. He says, grace teaches us that God does for others what we would never do for them. We would save the not so bad, but God starts with the prostitutes and works downward from there. He says, God's grace is a gift that costs everything to the giver and nothing to the receiver. It is given to those who don't deserve it, barely recognize it, and hardly appreciate it. That's why God alone gets the glory in your salvation. Jesus did all the work when he died on the cross. What does that mean? It means that God's gift of grace means that no one is too far from God to be saved. No one is is too far from God to be saved. And in fact, God specializes in saving some really bad people. You don't have to raise your hand this morning, but how many of you have done some really stupid things? Yeah, you don't have to raise your hand, but you choose to, okay? Just nod your head at me, right? We've all done those things, right? And and many of us, we have those things in in our past that we would be ashamed to talk about in in public. Do you know the name Jeffrey Dahmer? How many of you heard that one before? You can raise your hand to that one, right? How many of you heard that name before? He was a serial killer, convicted of multiple murders. They found that he would... Uh, actually cut up the bodies of his victims and store them in the freezer. Like, what kind of, wow, right? But do you know that he came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior in prison? If, If that's grace, and indeed that is, yes, grace is shocking, right? It's interesting because I was reading some about his story, and there's all kinds of articles online that argue the fact, man, Jeffrey Dahmer was never really saved. And I say, why are they arguing his salvation and not mine? Why do we debate about Jeffrey Dahmer's salvation and not mine? Because we don't think that he deserves it, but somehow we think that we do. But if we're really going to understand Grace Church, then we also have to believe that it's the Jeffrey Dahmers of this world that Jesus came to save. Scripture says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're sinners, but not really, really bad sinners. We're pretty good sinners, right? When we think that way, understand we minimize the grace of God. But when you begin to lean into the grace of God, you understand there is no reason to think that God would not save you regardless of your past. God knows all about what you've done. And it's his grace that is greater than all of your sin. 
And just as there is no one too bad for God's gift of grace, there is no one too good for God's grace. Again, we cannot do anything to warrant the intention of God in a way that would cause him to save us based on what we do. You see, we can fall into this trap of believing that, that our performance somehow saves us, right? That I, I gotta, I'm going to live a certain way, and I'm going to be good, and that's what's going to save me. And so when we feel like we're doing good, the enemy fills us with pride. Look at me, right? And when we're falling short, he uses that same way of thinking to accuse us and condemn us. He tries to convince us that God will only award those people who are perfect, right? But I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful today. God gives grace. Amen. God gives grace. You see, so many in our world believe if they live a good life, doing more good than bad, they're going to enter into heaven. But that is not what God's word tells us. It is not of our good works. It is the gift of God's grace that brings about faith. It's that faith that we need to believe in Christ and to accept him as our Lord and Savior. That is a gift. It's not about us. It's not about what we do or do not do. It's all about him and what he has already done. God's grace is a gift of salvation so that we can serve him. Again, verse 10, I love this verse. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love that. He's got them laid out. We just got to walk into those good works. Now, the Greek word for workmanship is the word poema. It could also mean masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. It's where we get the word poem or or poetry, for we are God's poetry. Understand this, that that God is writing a poem with your life because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And, And so God's gift of grace that leads to salvation is to create a masterpiece by God's choosing and by God's design and by God's timing so that God ultimately would get the glory through your life. God's grace in our lives is so that he can be glorified. Matthew 5, 16, we looked at that verse two weeks ago, right? Jesus taught his disciples, he taught his followers to do good works so that the world would look at them and glorify God. Understand, the good works were not for their reputation, they weren't for their ego, for their Christian standing, it was strictly for the glory of God. Now, I want all of us to understand that, that good works And doing good things for God, they're a part of our Christian walk, right? Every good tree produces fruit, but it's not the good works that saves us. They are an outgrowth of our obedience to Christ, and they glorify him. And so, therefore, being under God's grace doesn't give us the license to sit around and say, well, it's by God's grace I'm saved, I ain't got to do anything, right? Again, again, because we understand grace, because we're under grace, uh, we're not just sitting around as believers, because sitting around does not bring honor and glory to the kingdom, right? It doesn't bring honor and glory to Christ. We must be about the kingdom business that God has called us to. And, and, And when we're called from death to life, we know this, that we're blessed, when God's grace is gifted to us for our salvation and we are obedient to walk out that, that gift, right, devotion and love to him, it's not compulsion. We love him and so therefore we, 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 we obey him, right? 
Again, our obedience to his commands is not for us, but to glorify him. And our obedience then begins to bring us closer to him. But that's not the ultimate purpose. Again, the purpose is to glorify God. Soli Deo Gloria, right? For the glory of God alone. The benefit of a life that's lived in the understanding of the grace of God is that we grow closer to him and we're obedient to him. We are his workmanship. We are created to glorify him. And it is by the grace of God that we are in this place today. I want to ask today, are you still trying to live your Christian life outside of the grace of God? Are you trying to do things on your own strength and feel like, man, I just keep falling short? You need to know that when Christ called you to follow him, he he gives you all that you need by the grace of God to live the way that he calls you to live. You see, here's the thing. You and I don't just need saving grace. We need sustaining grace, right? We need the grace of God to keep on living the way that he desires us to live. And yet so many times, if we're honest, we find ourselves doing things on our own, on our own strength, in our own wisdom. I heard a story of a physics professor who was uh, just an extremely difficult professor. He would give these tests that were so hard. And one time in his introductory class, he decided he was going to give him a break. And so he said to the students, you can come to the test with all the information that you can fit on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of notebook paper. Whatever you can put on that, you can bring to the test. And so the students are like, wow, I'm going to take you up on this, right? And so they began to write in the smallest font they could on that sheet of paper all the answers, all the things that they needed. However, there was one student who showed up for the test with a blank piece of paper and an advanced physics student, somebody who had a master's level. And he had this guy stand on the piece of paper right next to his desk. (laughs) You know, he was the only one, the only one that received an A. You see, so often we think that we can do things on our own and we try to rationalize doing all these things that will cause us to grow in Christ when what we really need to do is understand by the grace of God, Jesus walks with us, amen? By the grace of God, he empowers us. I don't know where you're at this morning, but I want you to listen to Paul again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. So we're saved by faith, by placing our trust in what Jesus did on the cross. We're not saved by anything we do. You're not saved because you're a nice person this morning. You're not saved because you pay your bills on time and you go to church and you you read the Bible. No, we're saved from eternal punishment by Jesus' death on the cross, and that is a gift. You can't earn it by works. You can't boast about it when you have it because it's a gift to begin with, right? The only forgiveness available to you and I is the forgiveness received because of what Christ has done. Because only Christ's death deals with the problem of the human heart. Man, I, I love Broadway. Anybody else a Broadway fan here today? I can't wait for things to open up again. They're saying middle of September maybe we'll be able to go back and, and see a musical. I'm, I'm ready, right? But I think one of the greatest uh, musicals you could see on Broadway is Les Mis. Anybody see Les Mis before? Powerful story. I know you can watch the movie too, but it's more powerful on Broadway. But the story of Les Mis tells the story of a criminal by the name of Jean Valjean, right? Uh, He's a tough, bitter man, spent 19 years in prison. And when he's finally released, he finds it impossible to find work, to find shelter. No one wants anything to do 
with this criminal, but finally he's taken in by a kindly bishop, Bishop Muriel, right? He gives him food and he gives him a place to stay. However, in the middle of the night, Vajan creeps downstairs and he steals the bishop's silver and he sneaks out of the house. However, he's caught right away by the police and he's brought back to the bishop's house. Things look very desperate for Valjean. The bishop has the opportunity to incriminate him, right? He's been betrayed by him. He he could have imprisoned Valjean for the rest of his life, but instead the bishop says to Valjean, he says, so here you are. I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? They're silver like the rest and worth a good 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? And so at considerable cost to himself, the bishop asks the police to let Valjean go. And after they're gone, the bishop insists Valjean keep the silver and he keep the candlesticks. And basically, he absorbs the cost of the silver and he tells Valjean this, do not forget, do not ever forget that you have promised me to use the money to make yourself an honest man. Valjean is is stunned in that moment. He almost stutters, right? Why are you doing this? And the bishop replies, Jean Valjean, my brother, You no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I have bought your soul, and now I'm giving you back to God. Understand in that story, amen, understand in that that story, the bishop could have treated Valjean in one of three ways. He could have treated Valjean with justice, right? He he could have given him exactly what his, his deeds deserved. He could have said, give me back my silver, take this guy off to prison for the rest of his life. Understand today that would be justice. Simply giving him what he deserves, no more and no less. It's amazing because we want justice for everyone else, but for ourselves, we want mercy and we want grace, right? We want mercy, we want grace. The the bishop could have treated Valjean with leniency. He could have said, I I, I want my silver back, but I'm not going to press any charges. You just, just go, right? But the last option open to the bishop is exactly the option that he takes. He treats Valjean with grace. He says, I know what you've done. I know that you've abused my generosity. But look, keep the silver. Keep the candlesticks as well. You go free. The only thing I ask is that you use the money to change your life for the better. He gives the criminal standing before him a very expensive gift, one that is totally undeserved. That is grace treating him with undeserved love and undeserved generosity. And and church, we will never understand our faith rightly until we see ourselves in exactly the same position as Valjean. Each of us stand before God as Valjean stood before the bishop. We are utterly guilty. We are fully deserving of God's judgment We've abused God's grace and his love for us, and we have no way in and of ourselves of making the situation right, but rather than treating us as we deserve, God in his amazing grace and generosity offers us forgiveness, forgiveness that is made possible by Jesus' death on the cross. So remember today that this forgiveness is the gift of God. 
There's nothing that you and I can do to earn it. So, so how do we respond to it, right? If that's grace, how do I respond to grace? I trust in what Jesus did for me on the cross, and I trust that that's what saves me. Of course, we can only fully trust in the death of Jesus on the cross when we realize that we're powerless to save ourselves. We, we turn in utter dependence and, and weakness, realizing there is nothing we could do to cure the problem of our human heart. And here's the thing about grace. Not surprisingly today, many find it very hard to accept. It is difficult not only to admit how weak and dependent we are, but also to accept that anything so costly could be given to us for free. It's hard to accept this gift from God when all our lives we've been taught we need to earn our keep and earn our praise and, and earn our salary, right? But the truth is that the Christian life is not first and foremost about duty. No, it is first and foremost about receiving a gift that I do not deserve and then living a life of thanksgiving for that gift. In fact, the Greek word haris, the the word for grace, it also means rejoice. And we know that as soon as we accept the gift of God, we have eternal life in heaven. We are accepted by God. But what happens between now and heaven? Victor Hugo, the writer of Les Mis, once wrote these words. He said, life's greatest happiness is to be convinced that we are loved. Life's greatest happiness is to be convinced that we are loved. And that plays out in the story, right? Again, we see the undeserved forgiveness and generosity that Valjean receives from the bishop, and it changes his life. It, it, it unlocks his heart and unleashes his potential. He's free from fear. He's free from hatred. He, he becomes an amazing man of generosity and mercy, but it all stems from his new identity, which he found when the bishop treated him with grace. You see, God's grace really allows you and I to find our identity. God's grace allows me to see that my ultimate worth as a human being is in who Christ sees me to be. And that's such a relief, isn't it? Grace means God knows all about my sin, and yet he loves me unconditionally. The cross makes that very clear because even though he knows what I'm like, Christ died on my behalf. Think about it. The very person that will ultimately judge the world loves you completely. So as we move to close, I want to share with you three things, three results of living into grace today. Three tremendous results if we lean into and we live into grace. Number one, we no longer need to wear a mask. How many of you are thankful we don't have to, not the COVID masks, right? I'm talking about a mask that that we use to hide ourselves, right? So often we live our lives pretending we're something that we're not. Philip Yancey says this in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? He says, nothing I can do can make God love me more, and there's nothing I can do to make God love me less. Wow. God knows exactly what I'm like. He knows exactly what you're like, and yet he still loves you. And what does that mean? It means I don't have to pretend with God. Like, there's, there's no hiding behind a mask. Have you ever worried that your friends would think badly of you for something? Like, if they found out something in your past, they'd think badly of you? Perhaps you think, man, I'll be misunderstood or my reputation will be harmed. But understand this today. God knows the absolute truth about us. And here's the truth. It's actually much worse than what your friends think about you, okay? 
God knows the truth about me, and yet he still loves me. And so I don't need to wear a mask with God because I'm loved unconditionally. It is an extraordinary relief to no longer hide the truth about ourselves. You see, when we're honest, when we're honest about our sin and our struggles, when our sin is actually brought into the light, God can deal with our sin and he can bring freedom. Let me just say this this morning. It's okay to not be okay, but, but our God doesn't want to leave us that way, amen? He desires to work in us and change us. Secondly, as we lean into grace, it means we have nothing to prove. I don't know if you remember the diver by the name of Greg Luganis, Olympic diver. He performed so well under pressure. And he was asked, how, how, do you, how do you do that? I mean, with all that pressure, perform so well. He said this, even if I blow this dive, my mom will still love me. Wow, right? You see, he reminds himself of one relationship that will remain the same whatever his performance Luganus has nothing to prove to his mother. She loves him anyway. And in the same way, if you put your trust in Christ, you've got nothing to prove to God. God's love does not change for you because of his grace. Now, that's a great truth because, we, again, we live in, in a culture of conditional love, right? We're told over and over again, if you get the right grades, we'll, we'll affirm you. If you, get, if you do right, you'll feel loved. But if you don't, we're going to withdraw that love. And as we get older, love seems to always come with a price tag. I'll love you if you're young enough or you're successful enough or beautiful enough or talented enough, thin enough, right? It goes on and on and on. People's whole lives can be conditioned by the sense that unless I constantly prove myself, I won't be loved. But the Christian life isn't like that. The Christian life is motivated not by conditional love, but by unconditional love. It's not about proving yourself to God. It's about receiving a gift that you don't deserve and you can't earn, and then living a life of thanksgiving for that gift. Lastly, when we say this, as we lean into grace, we have no grudges to bear. We have no grudges to bear. You see, God's grace it doesn't just affect this relationship with God. It ought to affect every other relationship in our lives, right? Jesus taught his followers, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our, right? Forgive those, God. For, forgive me as, as I forgive others. Now, as you know, forgiving people who wrong you, it's challenging, right? But it's so much easier to forgive others when we remember how much God has forgiven us. And so church, this is grace. God sending Christ to die on the cross so that I can be forgiven even though I've done nothing to earn it, even though I, I deserve punishment. And in the light of that, there's no need to pretend we're something we're not or boast about what we've achieved. And there's every reason to freely forgive one another. I hope you can see this morning that although you're more sinful than you ever realized. You're also more loved than you ever dreamed. Would you stand with me today as we prepare to close? Thank you, Lord. I can't close our time today without giving you the opportunity to receive and to live into the grace of God. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you heard the testimonies this morning. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe you would say, Pastor, I, I don't deserve God's grace. I, I've made so many mistakes. 
I made more mistakes than I could possibly share with you. But I want to say, if you're there today, where you recognize your own sin and your own shortcoming, you are a perfect candidate for grace. It is a gift that's available to you. If you repent and believe. Repentance simply means this. It means to change your mind. Change your mind about your self-reliance. Change your mind about your self-righteousness. If you would humble yourself before God and just take off the mask, and say, God, you know about my situation. God, I, I turn from my sin. And I, I turn from doing things my own way and in my own power. I, I surrender to you. I trust in what you did for me on the cross. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. We think salvation's long term, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it right, God. Listen, you could never make it right on your own. But today, if you would surrender to Jesus Christ, he can come in and wash you white as snow. So with heads bowed around the room today, I want to ask just by an upraised hand if you would say, Pastor, I need to receive that grace today over my life. I want to receive the grace of Christ over my life. Praise God. Just by an upraised hand, say, I want to receive that grace. I, I need to live into that grace. Hallelujah. Hands around this room. I want to pray for you, and I want to ask that you would just repeat after me. And again, it's not the words that we say as much as the posture of our heart. So we come to God in humility. He already knows. <laughs> it's funny, we think we can hide it. He already knows. But as we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins. So I'm going to invite you, church, let's all repeat after me. And again, it's not the words we say, but the posture of our heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner. Lord, I know I've made mistakes. And so today I repent. I, re I turn from doing things my own way. I turn from my own righteousness. And Lord Jesus, I surrender to you. Jesus, I receive the gift that is available to me because of the cross. Lord Jesus, forgive my sins. Cleanse me. Make me new. Help me to live as you desire me to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today or rededicating your life to the Lord, again, Scripture says today is the day of salvation. I want to encourage you. Lean into grace. Amen. Let's lean into grace. Let's worship the Lord before we leave this place and just thank him for his grace in our lives. Amen.